Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Melissa Rivers, and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Group Text. You know, I love me some true crime, and I'm making Sabrina a believer now, too. Right, Sabrina? Yeah, she's she's going to the dark side like me. I am very, very excited. Actually, we are very excited to welcome Michael Epstein, host of the podcast Murder in House 2, as well as an Academy Award nominee. I mean, you've got like a crazy, crazy resume. Don't, don't judge a book by its cover. I'm actually yeah. not that good a person, so... Well, that's good to know. Neither am I. (laughs) Sabrina actually is. Well, no, you're in great. You're in great company. Great company. That doesn't make me a good person. (laughs) But I want to talk about murder in in house two because this is actually your second big deep dive into this story. It started out as a documentary, and now you've continued the story in a podcast where you sort of. It's more about your obsession and process of creating this documentary. But first, for people who don't know, tell us the story of Murder in House 2. Sure. So uh, about 15 years ago, uh, during the Eisenhower administration, uh, we were at war in Iraq. And a story broke that a group of Marines had, had murdered, had killed 24 Iraqi civilians, mostly in their homes. And at the time, it was a huge story. It led the evening news. It was the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I had just finished another film for A&E about uh, the war. And I thought, oh, this would be a good follow-up. Foolish me. And so I contacted the attorney of the staff sergeant who was at the center of the investigation, uh, a guy named, a, a kid named Frank Wooderich. Frank was 25 years old and found himself being accused of killing uh, 18 civilians. Basically, the government said he was a mass murderer. And Frank said he was completely innocent, that he, he didn't kill anybody. And so I thought that what I could do is make a nice, small, behind-the-scenes film uh, about his defense, right? Like, my assumption was Because, that- by the way, nothing like a small, light- you know, topic, you know, small light film about someone who's being accused of mass murder, you know, following their defense, cheerful topic. It is. Well, you know, for documentary <laughs> filmmakers, we go for, we go for the light and airy, like yeah. unicorns and rainbows and ice And cream clearly rainbows. that fit, fell into that bucket. Yeah. Well, look, I, you know, I, I think people are rightly fascinated by the legal system and trials and, and, and evidence. And here, no, here was a guy who, who absolutely claimed that he killed nobody. Not that he didn't kill like some of them, that he didn't kill anybody. And the government is saying, no, you killed 18 people. And what really became insane 
was once I got inside, and I want to talk a little bit because how I, I think what makes Murder in House Two as a podcast so different is that I got unprecedented access. I got access into a murder trial the way I don't I don't think anybody ever has before, at least not to record the daily conversations and all the evidence. So everything kind of plays out for you in real time. So Frank, th there was a convoy in the town of Haditha. There was an IED blast. And in the aftermath of that IED blast, uh, one Marine was killed, two were wounded, and then 24 civilians were killed by that squad. And Frank was, that was Frank's squad. He was the staff sergeant in, in that squad. And the government, the Marine Corps lied. They covered it up. They didn't report it, they lied about it, and it was months and months later that a reporter for Time Magazine got wind of it. He got some pictures, he got some videotape of the aftermath, uh, and then he reported it in Time Magazine, and the thing just blew up. It just it was just after Abu Ghraib, and um, the Marine Corps got caught lying. Um, Bush administration got caught lying. And so they had to sort of kind of unwind the clock and try to figure out the facts of the case. But by that point, literally all the evidence had been buried. I mean, the houses had been remodeled. Nobody had treated the crime scene as crime scenes at that moment. Um, so the two senior most NCI forensic experts went out to Haditha to walk the crime scene, to go to the site to try to find evidence, but you know, no autopsies had been done, no witness statements had been taken at the time, um, just nothing, nothing. Uh, and yet remarkably, what the government didn't know at that point was that one Marine had taken photographs and kept the photographs, hoping and anticipating that there would be an investigation. Um, really? The truth, yeah. think the truth finds the light some way, somehow. Exactly. And, you know, to make the story even darker, I mean, that Marine uh, could became obsessed with these photographs. Every night he would look at them over and over and over again. And eventually uh, he went crazy. And wow. Like how crazy? Like, like crazy, crazy? Crazy, crazy. Well, can you imagine, though? Can you imagine, like, the hauntings of these souls and everything that was, like, silenced and covered up? Well, and that's yeah. a lot of, you know, you hear about people coming back with major PTSD and that's, mm -hmm. a, that's things, seeing, seeing things like that is, is a big major cause. Okay. Sorry. We interrupted. No, 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 no. Sure. I, he did have PTSD. I mean, he tried to commit suicide because of the photographs and they medevaced him out on Christmas or New Year's day. Uh, the event happened in November by, by Christmas, he wasn't really functioning. I tried to OD by, by New Year's day, they medevaced him to Germany and put him in a psych ward with the photographs. Um, because they didn't know that they were on his computer. Um, and then eventually around March, the NCIS came knocking on his door and he was just like, please take these, you know, here, I, I don't want them. You can have them. And that's when the investigation really kind of kicked into high gear um, because the so photographs became really the only meaningful forensic evidence in the entire case. So they, they meaning the NCIS, the government, the right. The government, or is that JAG, or wh whatever it is. Right, so out. the NCIS is kind of like the FBI for the Navy. Naval right. Criminal Investigative Service, I guess is the way to think about it, right? Like the, the TV show, like CSI. 
we're talking about the actual one, not the TV show. Right. Exactly. A little so bit they different. they go after this guy Frank, who is the squad leader. Yes. Yeah, so the the NCIS collects tens of thousands of pages of evidence. They give it to prosecutors. You know, it's like it's like any kind of you know you have an investigative like the police, and then you have the DA's office who files the charges. It's the same kind of system. But it's a system within a system. Yeah, exactly. And 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 the law, if you are a Marine or a soldier, is a little bit different uh, than civilian law. It's called the Uniform Code of Military Justice, UCMJ. Um, that's the JAG stuff that you see on TV and, you know, Tom Cruise and, you know, you can't a few good men. Exactly. Yeah. So those are all military courts. And that's where this thing lived for close to a decade. And so when all of this was kind of bubbling up and going on, I reached out to, to Neil Puckett, who was Frank's lawyer, and said, hey, I have, I'd love to film Frank's defense. I mean, at the time, I thought, oh, this will take a year, maybe a year and a half. Um, and I very naively assumed that, like, the truth would come out at trial, right? Everything, all the evidence would come out in the courtroom. I didn't care, honestly, if Frank was guilty or if he was innocent. Like, I didn't feel like I had a dog in that fight. But I just thought, wow, it'd be really interesting to see this thing play out. Right, the, the, inner, the inner workings of a different justice system. So exactly. Mm-hmm. Right. So how did it go to 10 years or 15 well, years? I mean, I understand appeals and court minutia. This, this is like crazy time. Yeah, it, it, it. It, cons- it, it consumed and destroyed my life, to be honest. Well, wait, first of all, so did Frank sit in uh, the brig? Or was it the brig? No, yeah. so brig, yeah. Uh, so no, Frank was never deemed a threat when he came home. So he wasn't deemed a threat to himself or to right. others or, or, or a threat to, to escape, right? So he was just living with his family at Camp Pendleton, Uh but let me rewind a little bit because what ended up happening was I ended up going in and meeting Neil and there were a lot of press, you know, trying to get access. And I, I drove down to Virginia and had coffee with Neil at his local Starbucks and said, you know, this is what I want to do. And Neil laughed and said, absolutely not. Like that's the craziest, dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because if prosecutors, if the government finds out you are filming privileged conversations between Frank and his attorney, they're going to argue that Frank waived attorney-client privilege, and they're going to subpoena everything you filmed. And you can sit here, sipping your latte, uh, telling me that you're not going to give the government the tapes, but, you know, you're going to spend a night or two in jail, and you'll give them a... Right, and and honestly, you're going to crack. I'm going to crack. Let's be honest, you have a family yourself, you're like, I'm not sitting in, in when well, you're in New York and you're not going to go sit at Rikers for 48 hours. Uh, not for 48 minutes, not no. for 48 seconds. Right? No. And he knew that. And yeah. so he was like, forget it. We're done. This is over. And uh, honestly, was like, I should have, I should have said, thank you very much. Gotten back in my car and drove home. But I came up with an absolutely crazy idea, which was for him to hire me and to make me part of the defense team. And so then it stayed privileged. Correct. And the idea. And that was covert too, huh? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, exactly. But the government, you know, I mean, eventually I ended up going to Iraq. I ended up going to Haditha with Frank and going into the bedrooms and so on and so forth with everybody who was killed. But at the time, you know, the deal was if, if we have a contract, right, and I'm not going to get paid and you're not going to pay me and I'm not going to pay you so that no money can exchange hands so that I, I have some independence journalistically. The idea is that you know, I'll be your note taker or I'll, I'll record things. I'll do depositions. I'll go to Cal Pendleton in California when you can't. And this way, if the government comes and subpoenas me, it's privilege. You know, I can say, I don't own it. I don't even have it. They're Frank's. I mean, they're Neil Puckett's. Go subpoena Frank Woodridge's attorney for his own work product and, and good luck with that. And so right. that was the, that was what we did. And what ended up happening was, yeah, I mean, there was just endless appeals. It became like this weird rabbit hole. I mean, I should say that one of the weirdest parts of this entire story, once I fully got immersed in it, was it wasn't just that Frank was saying he didn't kill anybody. It was it was that he said he couldn't remember. So the government- really? Yeah, that's the, that's the wiggiest part of this whole thing. So, so you ended up going back to, I mean, so this- went on and on and on and on for what, 10 years? Yeah, something, well, like seven and then 10, one upon a time I got like all the tapes and everything back and like, you know, sort of assembled the whistleblowers in the case because eventually by the time the court martial happened, uh, it was clear the government had hid evidence, had uh, committed perjury, had um, put, witnesses on the stand who they knew were lying had granted immunity and dismissed charges to Marines that their own experts said were guilty. And I couldn't quite figure out what the hell was going on. So it took another four or five years to get the key whistleblowers inside the NCIS to go on the record um, to sort of convince them that it was safe to speak publicly about what had happened on the prosecution side. I mean, I knew everything from the defense side, but I was blind to what was the other side. So during the whole process, so you just mentioned that you went back yeah. to Iraq. My with, wife was thrilled with that I'm sure. decision, by the way. Yeah, I'm sure. Nothing like, you know, honey, I'm, I'm on a work trip. Can I say the weirdest thing about that work trip was that uh, my life insurance policy, I realized was no good because it had had an exclusion if you get killed in a war zone. Uh, By the way, that's not anything I've ever checked for in mine. And sometimes, yeah. you know, living with a teenager can be something like a war zone. I thought, well, my marriage, right? You know, so. <laughs> Sabrina, you're not. <laughs> Sabrina, have you checked yours? I have not, but after this conversation, I will. You're going to yeah, go, exactly. right? Exactly. So how, so you've got Frank, and I'm just trying to condense the story for our listeners. Yeah, so sure. Frank's saying he didn't remember anything. Right. Conveniently, conveniently. Right. Or PTSD. Yes. Well, how about, I'm sure he probably thought the government's going to protect me because they're in on this. Well, you know, I think at some point he started to feel like he was being scapegoated by them. And it now, was a very weird thing that he was being scapegoated. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. But mm -hmm. look, while we were in it, we were we were like you guys, all of us, the lawyers. I mean, we were all like, what the hell is going on? Why can't he remember? Can he not remember because he's guilty and he did it? Right. And it's just lying to us. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, does he have PTSD? 
right? Is, and, and, if, and if he's not lying, if he really does have PTSD, why can't he remember, right? Is it because he did it and he's like short-circuited or because he saw something and he's short-circuited? And if he's lying, is he covering up and who's he covering? I mean, like we, <laughs> because no matter how many times you asked, right? Right. You got this kind of long convoluted stuff. And the weird part was there's, it's a complicated story, but it really boils down to why the podcast is called Murder in House 2. It boils down to one bedroom in one home. And how is that? Well, everything else that happened that day, uh, it all happened within a very short window, but it happened in a couple different locations. Um, Those probably legally, not necessarily morally, but legally could be explained away by the fog of war. Um, You know, in, in so many difficult ways, this case has sort of parallels to a lot of uh, excessive force and police shootings here in the States. You know, right. the idea that, oh, I felt like I was in threat. And so, you know, your state of mind becomes a legal excuse for behavior or actions that we would find abhorrent and immoral. So basically a lot of things can be, it, it's a different code in the fog of war. But yeah. like you said just now, it comes down to one bedroom. So you went back with Frank to the scene of the crime. That had to be crazy. How did, did he have a very emotional reaction? Frank never at any point displayed any emotion in the entire time that I was Even going there. back. Even going back. And, and, and the crazy, the, the really difficult thing about house two is this is, uh, there was a bedroom where two women and five children were executed on their mother's bed. Uh, to make the, you know, to be blunt about it. Right. And, and, and even Frank's defense team knew early on, as soon as they saw the photographs and as soon as they got the NCIS reports, that there was no excuse for what happened in House 2. That, that you know, the, Neil, who was the lead lawyer, at one point said to me, whoever did that was a psychopath. I mean, that was Frank's defense team's point of view about the crime, right? And... Frank, whenever you asked him what happened in house two, right? Because the government had a witness that said he shot. The government had somebody that said Frank was the primary shooter who stood at the foot of the bed and executed all those children. And whenever you said, Frank, okay, if you didn't do it, who did? What happened? He would tell you he forgot. He couldn't remember. And so there was a point where we just, we were like a week or two away from trial and they were desperate desperate. I mean, you can't go to trial with a defense of, I forgot. Well, we did have the Iran-Contra hearings, but, you yeah, know. Yeah, right. Well, listen, if anybody's <laughs> listening or, or, or Sabrina and Melissa, my unsolicited, my one piece of advice, if there's one takeaway from this, if ever you get charged with mass murder, don't go to trial with, I forgot, as your defense. It's right. probably not the not best. So, it's not so good. <laughs> Not so good. It's the old, I can't recall. Right. Uh, so the decision was we had to go to that home. And uh, so I went uh, with one of Frank's lawyers, Lieutenant Colonel Colby Vokey, myself and Frank. And we flew to Kuwait uh, and then took military transport to Al-Assad Air Base and then convoyed through Anbar, which is by the Syrian border 
to the town of Haditha and walked around for uh, a while. And I put Frank in the room with and? the camera. And he, you know, either, and this you have to listen to the podcast, either he remembered, depending on what you want to believe, uh, or he finally told us the truth, but he finally put a Marine in that room who none of us thought was in that room, ever. And we were like two, two weeks away from the trial. And I then sent the videotape, uh, the story's so old, there was actually videotape back then, um, back to Camp Pendleton in advance of the trial. And the lawyers just, they couldn't believe what they saw. And they went back into like 10,000 pages of NCIS documents and discovered shell casings, bullet casings that connected that Marine to the crime that everybody had Wow. So, so, to, so to jump ahead, two, two questions before I jump ahead. Yeah. Um, one is how bizarre was it to stay for you? Cause you're a parent yeah. to stand in that room. How emotionally taxing was that? Was all of this, but particularly that on you, emo, you know? Yeah, you know, I would say afterwards, well, there were a couple of things Frank said in the room that just really disgusted me, to be honest. Uh, just like I couldn't, uh, I couldn't believe that they were the things that he was relaying that they said that day. So there was some shock, but you know, it's kind of, you know, when you act or when you film, you kind of have to be kind of in that moment, uh, detached from practically everything else, because especially in documentary, I mean, there's no retakes. You can't, you know, go back That's and do That's the difference reshoot. between documentaries and reality TV. No do-overs. Right, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's no do-overs. Yeah. Well, you know, it's that old Hitchcock. I don't know if you've ever heard that Hitchcock line that on a movie set, the director is God but in a documentary, God is the director. Oh, that's uh, a good one. Ooh. It's a good one. It's and in reality fun. TV, <laughs> the ratings, the ratings, even though we call them <laughs> docu-series. Right, exactly. So, uh, you know, there was a part of me that, you know, I had my camera, I had my equipment, I had schlepped uh, it everywhere. And I had the sappy plates, you know, the armor right. stuff. And I, I had the helmet and... Uh, I was exhausted. I mean, it was a heavy stuff and I didn't want to miss that moment. So no. there's a part of it where you're just there and it's kind of like afterwards you look at the footage, you're like, wait, wait a minute. I went to Iraq. I, I like, uh, and it was, you know, I have to say on a personal note, separate from it, it was, um, it was a life altering experience. Right. I mean, to me, the really emotional moment was the night before I left. Um, because once you're in it, you kind of don't think about it so much. You kind of just have to be and do. Um, but you have a lot of time to think before you go. And my wife and I had a routine back then. Our kids were, were much younger, obviously. Uh, they were seven and four. And you know, I, like a lot of parents, we would read them stories and my wife would sing a song because I, I can't sing on key to save my life. Um, and we would lay down next to them. And as I was lying down next to my four-year-old, it hit me that like, I'm, I'm going to war the next day. And that if something were to happen, and if I, if I wasn't gonna come home, 
she wouldn't remember me. I mean, she was too little to remember me, you know? I mean, wow. there's, there's pictures and people would tell her stories, but I mean, you know, she was four. And then I thought like, wow, how many, how many other people, uh, Marines, soldiers, you know, who have gone to war uh, with that exact same thought? Um, and I realized like at, at that moment, like how disconnected I was you know, for all the thing, ways I try to keep up in the news and for all the ways I, I try to stay connected, like, wow, I'm really, we're, we are profoundly disconnected from, from the experience of war for a lot of uh, servicemen and women who go. So that, that was a moment for me. Uh, that was a real moment for me emotionally. So just because I want to get a little bit more into the podcast versus the movie or the documentary is, so what happened? So... Frank gets convicted. Frank gets well, that's court-martialed. The that's the surprise end. I, mean, I know, but I want to go back to, because <laughs> I want to get into the whistleblowers. So, so obviously, if, obviously, if the prosecution has been keeping evidence and making stuff up and they're whistleblowers, one can only deduce yeah. that Frank was convicted. And he a lot not. of this came out. He was not convicted. No, so and not I on would, appeal. I could, I could see that. I could see how Frank wasn't convicted. So what made yeah. you? If Frank wasn't convicted, what made you keep going? I just couldn't stand the idea that truth could just be so cavalierly dismissed. And there was, there was a young girl whose family was killed in House Two, and she was thirteen at the time, and the idea that no one cared, right? That her whole family was murdered by us and that the government lied about it, covered it up, and then very methodically worked to undermine their own case. And just, I just said, I, you know, how? How? To, Why to, would remain, they- to remain silent felt being complicit in the crime. I guess is really how I can answer that for myself. I just couldn't, and it killed me. I mean, it, it destroyed me financially. I just kept, I just kept trying to, to tell it and tell it and tell it, and uh, which is why there's the podcast now. So, which is doing very well in the UK, oddly enough. Yes. Okay. So just to just to rewind to make sure I've got my head around this because I am fascinated. It is a fascinating story, but on two levels. Um, right. The first one being the fact that the military was just going through the motions of almost a mock trial to get the public off their back. Number one. Yeah, I think that's pretty close. I, I would agree with that. And number two, though, that you were so disturbed by this that you then continued this quest and it became your story. Yes. And that's how the documentary is different than the podcast, really. Right. Because the documentary ends and the podcast kind of begins. Yeah, they're different formats. They're different artistic. Well, yes, they're meetings. obviously different formats. Well, thank but you. Not- <laughs> Sorry. No, but no, he means really? that. <laughs> you know, like you know, I, 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 like for a documentary, I'm not like a Werner Herzogy kind of guy who likes to talk over all of it. You know, it's like here it is, and it's a more passive. You know, going to the movies, right? can be wonderful. I mean, it's a very passive thing. The film washes over you. You feel all these emotions. It's a different Um, experience. Yeah. Podcasts, you know, obviously like this, you know, you're in people's head 
And, and it's a very one-on-one, -on -one. you know, either it's like the three of us chatting and talking together very, you know, intimately, or it's me talking to you. Right. And so I get to give you more in the podcast and I get to do these weird tangents and stuff like that. But what, what I, what I would say is I went into Frank's trial convinced that I understood what was going on, that the government was going to say or do absolutely anything so that it could get a conviction of Frank Woodridge, that, that he was going to be the guy who was going to be responsible for it all. And that way they could say, it's not us. It's not our training. It's not, you know, it's not the rogue squad. We're not responsible. This one bad actor went crazy one day and he's the reason why this terrible thing happened and he's guilty and the case is over. And then literally, I'm not kidding. Three weeks into the trial, we were taking a break from for lunch. One of their witnesses who was horrible, uh, was just getting obliterated under cross, uh, was finishing up and the lead prosecutor turned to Neil, who was Frank's lawyer and said, we're done. You know, how do you want this to end? Can, you can go. And they offered Frank a plea deal, which amounted to like nothing more than a speeding ticket. I mean, not even a speeding ticket. I mean, it's the, they offered him the absolutely lowest specification you can charge somebody with under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, like a zero. And, um, and that was after saying that he had murdered 18 people, that he had killed a room full of children. I mean, they'd spent three weeks saying he was a mass murderer and then just let him walk. And I was, I was just like, what the hell's going on? Was that the moment for you where you realized there was more to this? Yeah. yeah. It's totally. so much deeper than what you're totally. even imagining. Even now, I can probably say. Yeah, you know, because you can't get into their heads. But then I spent, so the two NCIS special agents, uh, one's name is Mike Maloney. The other's name is Tom, Tom Brady, oddly enough. I was going to um, say strangely enough. Yeah. It's not, it's not that going so, It's not going so well in Tampa Bay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you didn't know. You didn't know that he, while he was uh, winning Super Bowls, he was moonlighting at the NCIS. Uh, no, so Tom and, and Mike were really these fascinating guys. And I had spent, you know, better part of a decade reading their forensic reports. And they were not allowed to testify at the trial. And, and we kind of always assumed by the time we got to the trial that the government's own forensic experts, wrap your head around this, were likely going to be defense experts, which is to say that the evidence so contradicted the government's case that the government's forensic experts would end up being hostile to the government case. Does that make, am I? Wow. It's weird, right? I've never, and they, the government never called them. Like Mike was literally the next witness to take the stand. And rather than having Mike take the stand, the government basically pulled the ripcord and just had the whole thing go away. And so I spent years. I mean, one of the reasons why this thing took forever was I didn't feel like I could tell the story with what I had from the inside when it, when it ended. Um, because 
there were too many questions that I didn't have answers for. And, and then the things that, uh, there were things I just didn't know at all. Um, and it took a long time. I mean, it was, it was a weird thing. I mean, I say, what kind of a toll did this take on you personally and on your family and on your, your relationship? Well, yeah. Yeah. The documentarian doesn't like being asked yeah. a, a little bit of I a mean, deep question I'm, now, does I, he? I'm a little reluctant because, you know, I, I, I've been reluctant to turn the story into me because like I didn't, you know, it's not my personality really in that regard. But um, it is a compelling part of the story and a very compelling part of the podcast. It is. And I've come to recognize that it's how most people will connect to the story. It's what they'll care about. Because look, you're never going to care about Frank. I mean, right. I mean, you just can't. I mean, you know, um, it took a toll. Yeah, no, I would be, I mean, th there's a weird thing that I've come to realize now, like, this is the biggest thing that will probably happen in my adult life. I mean, professionally, right? K kids aside, and, right. you know, things personal. But this will define me. And and not in, a, not in a great way. Like somebody was said to me the other day, like, oh, how romantic that you stuck with this for 15 years. And I was like, what the hell? No, nothing. There was nothing romantic. It was hell. I mean, there were, there was a meeting I had. I mean, the big thing was I couldn't, I couldn't get anybody to tell the story. But yet you could, but by the way, but what's interesting is, but you couldn't let it go. No, I mean, look at all the time he had already devoted. It's right, like, but, I'm going to leave in midstream with all these loose ends. No. Yeah. I, yeah. I just couldn't, like, the, the survivor, I mean, uh, you know, people will find out in the podcast later, but I just couldn't let her, I just could not. There was a moment, I just kept getting rejected and rejected and rejected. I, we stopped counting at 37 wow. rejections. And uh, rejections anybody, by people willing to talk to you. No, from broadcasters, streamers, newspapers. Really? And why do why? you think that is? Why? I, I, man, Sabrina, if I knew the answer to that question, I would, you know, it's like John Lennon once asked, like, you know, what's the secret to the Beatles? And he's like, if I knew, I'd become a manager and start, you know, my own boy band. Um, <laughs> if I knew the answer, I would just solve it. I just, I, I think, I think at some level, we just got worn down by by the war and just wanted to move on and didn't want to sort of think about what it did to us or what we did in it. Um, and... And painting the military as, as a bad guy is not terribly yeah. popular and hasn't right. been terribly popular in a while. Right. No, look, I mean, I have a lot of very, very, very dear friends. My very best friends, you know, is in the Marine Corps. And I mean, but, but they would tell you too, like we, we fetishized military service and not being able, you know, one hallmark of a democracy is civilian oversight of the military. And, you know, in a lot of ways, we've sort of stopped that. And I can see it bleeding in to, you know, the way a lot of people look at police policing, right? I mean, imagine Breonna Taylor happening or George Floyd or any of the, the things happening and sort of saying, eh, you know, I, I can't really be bothered about stuff like that. Um, and that's sort of how I felt here, that it was too much of an injustice and I 
I couldn't, I just couldn't let it go. I just could not let it go. And so um, I, I finally sort of put the film aside and opened my laptop and started writing the podcast. And um, got very fortunate to find a great team over in the UK uh, who, who loved the story and who said, yeah, we'll, we'll help you make it. So we just dropped the fourth episode, which details all the things we've been talking about, about Frank and his memory and his inability to remember. And there's this just crazy scene where one of the lawyers sort of puts him through this hypnotic memory exercise, walking through his apartment to try to get him to remember. Um, and, you know, you're kind of, I think what's interesting about the series and what I love about it is you're literally in the room with them as this thing's unfolding. And that's, I think for a lot of true crime fans, that's not something you get. Um, and the story gets really wiggy. I mean, really, really, really wiggy. And the two whistleblowers are dear friends now. It took forever to get them. I mean, they were, that was like, I would write Mike these long, he wouldn't want to put anything down to paper or in an email. He was scared. So he would say, well, you tell me what you think. And, and all, all, if I cough twice, you're right. And if I cough yes. once, you're wrong. Right. Exactly. Blink and, twice, you know. Yeah. And he would send back a note saying, oh, that sounds very interesting. I think you're, I mean, I was like, Mike, just cut it out. <laughs> like, stop. And eventually uh, they agreed to go on camera. So before we let you go, where can we find the documentary and where can we find the podcast? Well, you can find the podcast anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Good. Apple. Same places as mine. Yes, exactly. Well, then, you know, isn't that the great thing about it? Like there's like zero barrier of entry. Yes. I love that about the about podcasting. I right. love listening to podcasts because of that. Somebody says, oh, you should check it out. And you're like, oh, great. I don't even have to ask. I know where it's, it's everywhere. So, yeah, Murder in House 2 is everywhere. Uh, it's a 10-part series. Um as I said, we just dropped episode four. And where could we find, if we want to sort of follow the whole thing from the beginning of your journey through the podcast, where can we actually find the documentary? You can't. You can't. The, docu the documentary never found a home. And well, so we're going to have to. Ooh, okay. That's a whole separate discussion. Okay. But, so but I will say this. I will say this. If you follow our social media handles, right? If you look on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, all those things, pieces of the documentary are being released. So as you're hearing something from the podcast and you're like, oh my God, like I can't imagine what that looks like, here's the video of that scene. So we're, we're sort of, as we're going along, giving people drips and drabs of the film. But yeah, you can't see the film. The, the film's not available. Not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Not yet. So exactly. When, so not when they yet. make Thank the you, when they make the feature, who do you want yeah. to have play you? Who should you now you've seen me. You've talked to me. I mean, uh Clooney, Brad Pitt, what do you what I would I, lean what more you? I would lean more Clooney. Yeah. A little more a little more gravitas in that. We have a mute but you know, it was, but it was 15 years ago. I'm thinking maybe, you know, if we do it in flashback from now, we go with Clooney, and I think if we tell it in the actual real time, we go with 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 Pitt. Yeah, Unfor you know, my wife always teases me that it would be Anthony Edwards, but uh, so I'm <laughs> ER fame. I'm like, no, any right? <laughs> Michael Epstein, Murder in House Two, the podcast. You can find it on 
every platform, same places you can find me. Oh my God, I want to continue this conversation at some point. Fascinating.